people need ordering principles. Twelve rules. Hello, welcome to Twelve Rules for What. This time we're talking about radicalization on the internet. The processes through which people um, become more and more and more right-wing and the ways in which their actions become more politically significant as well. We're going to have an interview with Non-Compete, who's a YouTuber who's been doing a lot of work on this idea called the PewDiePie Pipeline. So PewDiePie is this YouTuber. He's the most uh, popular single YouTuber in the world. He's got 90 million subscribers on YouTube. So he's a huge fan base, huge, huge, huge fan base. The Christchurch shooter before starting uh, to kill people said subscribe to PewDiePie. Um, as it was kind of a part of a meme to try and get PewDiePie to remain on number one, the number one spot on YouTube. His content used to be mostly oriented towards gaming and it's now become a kind of general overview of like meme culture on the internet. So he does meme response videos. He does also kind of talking to camera. He does lots of videos that are about himself and the various kind of controversies he's been involved in. Uh, there's a much more thorough introduction to PewDiePie who he is on that video. So... I recommend you go and watch that. That'll be in the show notes. It's called the PewDie Pipeline. And the idea basically is that PewDiePie and other kind of online people, um, other internet comics really, but uh, commentators more generally also, form a kind of pipeline that takes people from edgy humour and um, just kind of slightly abrasive uh, style of yeah, engaging with politics or engaging with the world or kind of a nihilistic attitude and takes them slowly bit by bit through a sequence of kind of radicalization steps and puts them in the far right. How it is that people go from watching this stuff, which seems comparatively innocuous, to becoming really, really far right um, Nazis, basically, on the internet and the radicalization process as a whole. That interview is coming up in a bit, but first we're going to talk about other facets of internet culture. For example, Alex, you wanted to talk about cringe videos. So... I think the reason we, we want to talk about radicalization, just to back up a little bit, is that it it, it seems to be that it, radicalization through the PewDiePie pipeline, so called, is um, like the premier, the prime example of, of radicalization today, um, and that actually doesn't have to be left or right. Um, a lot of like internet anarchists, internet communists, came to their ideology not through struggle, but through watching content on YouTube, which is an interesting phenomena. Um, and so to really understand why we have these uh, reactionary groupings in America and UK, across the world, um, and why they're having such influence in our in our societies is we need to understand how they became that way. And um, primarily, it was, it's through, um, yeah, consuming content, ultimately, and starting out with very innocuous things. We need to think, we need to start thinking about, about, fairly innocuous content on YouTube and other internet platforms um, that can start the process of radicalization. And a prime example of these are, are what's known as cringe videos. And cringe is a very popular kind of genre on the internet in general. Um, you know, content, pictures, videos that make you like kind of square up inside and just think, oh, how, how awful if that was me. Fixated on what well, often quite like minor social embarrassments or kind of... Um, so faux pas. It's a, like a, I think, quite a straightforwardly, quite a conservative social form. There's a lot of shame involved, shaming as well, public shaming, and a, a subset of this genre of, of content has has become 
the feminist cringe video, the SJW cringe video, in which there's just compilations of clips after clips of people expressing feminist views um, or other kind of liberation-focused views um, in what would be classified by like an internet reaction in a, in a cringe manner. All these uh, clips bundled together into hours-long compilations, which are then queued up by the algorithm as similar content and can just be played pretty much continuously 24-7 for a, a number of days. Um, it's this kind of like initial kind of break where you find yourself laughing at people who are, are concerned with um, uh, the liberation of oppressed groups, um, which kind of starts the process and American Johnson talks about this in our interview of like dehumanization. And you you have a really concerted, concerted effort on on the far right and in fascist circles online to uh, build up these um, enemies of, of which you can then laugh at and then fight against, oppose, mock. Um, we see this with Antifa, um, you know, the classic image of an American anti-fascist, like thin-armed, um, I guess, lispy queer who, like... It doesn't conform to any gender and has dyed hair and doesn't wash. And you also have the same thing with the same, a similar image being constructed as the SJW, dyed hair, college student, um, you know, think of all the reactionary tropes you can bundle into one person and then uh, and then there you, there you got them. The, rea- the, the figure of fun in these videos is often some kind of combination of like two things that are absolutely taboo on the far right. One is really, really caring about something and the other is a kind of effeminization or a kind of lack of masculine characteristics. And this goes to a wider point of, of like cynicism and irony on the internet in which sincerity and you know, heartfelt fighting for a better world is immediately um, taken down, mocked, um, in, in a way that we haven't really seen in kind of other periods of history. Um, a lot of these um, movements, communist movements, liberation movements, they were... They were mocked, but they were taken as dangerous. They were taken as like something that should be considered by um, wider society. And there was a clear process in which um, initial mockery turned to fear and then eventually turned to acceptance. And eventually these movements kind of won a certain advancement, advancements in, in, in situations. And these kind of, this kind of like overt studied cynicism uh, ultimately tries to disrupt that process and keep these people as objects to mock and laughingstock. Um, and so they never move on to the stage of actually winning victories or making gains. And the kind of summary meme of this approach to the world, that everything that is earnestly felt that deserves to be mocked is a thing called uh, the clown world meme, um, which you might see around. It's uh, Pepe the Frog. It's kind of green... Uh, frog has become very popular in far right circles, but with a clown nose and a clown wig on, multicolored clown wig. And the idea is that instead of being angry with this world, the far right is pretending often to be just kind of disappointed with it or mocking it or reveling in its absurdity. And I think it's what's important to note is that although this seems like a, a different kind of attitude to social justice or um, liberation movements, or indeed to the absurdities of the contemporary world, it is completely coherent with and continuous with a, a, a cynicism that admits nothing but the most um, reactionary of behavioural norms. I mean, this is, is not exactly a new thing. And we can like, kind of pinpoint um, 
it's development in, in programs like South Park, where you know the ultimate the ultimate figure of mockery on South Park is someone who takes themselves sincerely and tries to sincerely change things. Tall rules for what is, of course, not anti-mockery and not anti-humor. We're anti a kind of style of humor that obsesses in punching down. Hi, Sam here. At this point of the conversation, we turn back to talking about radicalization on the internet more generally, and talking about the PewDiePie pipeline in particular. You should also note there's a content one for this episode for discussions of sexual violence, anti-Semitism, and mass murder. So we go from uh, making jokes, and in the course of, you know, this could happen over the course of months, could happen over the course of years, it could even happen much faster. So um, in the case of the Finsbury Mosque attack, uh, there was a the guy who drove the van into the crowd of people going to Friday prayers or just coming out of Friday prayers. He had self-radicalised um, using uh, theories of kind of, or conspiracy theories of white genocide uh, on the internet over the course of, I think it was three weeks. Well, initially, initially was set off by a BBC drama about uh, child abuse in Rotherham. Right. And so he very quickly um, took kind of outrage about uh, child abuse and um, very quickly radicalised himself and concluded that the, you know, the thing he had to do was uh, um, attempt to commit mass murder. So there's a really kind of, um, there's a there's a well-structured pipeline of information that takes people from kind of conventional right-wing views all the way over to the far right very rapidly. The interesting thing about this pipeline, of course, it's like it's, it's not really a pipeline in that it's kind of like a multi-formed interrelating system um, in which, like the the base, uh, build makes uh, they each make each other more and more acceptable. So the people out there saying the really shocking Holocaust denial stuff makes the lower level ironic humour pale in comparison. But then the ferments created by the Holocaust, like Holocaust jokes or the, you know, uh, racist jokes or whatever, then gives sucker and pushes up the new the next generation of these like more hardcore extremist kind of people so it's a really interesting way kind of people i imagine people probably move between the two throughout uh, we we haven't ever been in this position but you imagine you would cycle between more and less extreme content until eventually finding yourself more in the upper tiers of of this thing what's kind of i guess like a bit sad about doing this episode is that it's now 2019 um, July 2019 and we could have done this episode in 2014 the radicalization that was going on on 4chan on B on Poll has was started then it was, it's been going off for five years and not much has changed except that the uh, kind of conflict that was going on on Poll at that point um, has actually just become a kind of a, a monocultural um, do you want to explain what Poll is real quick yeah so Poll is um one of the boards on the website 4chan, and it's also perhaps more significant, also a board on a different website called 8chan. Um, 4chan, although it's often understood as the kind of outer reaches of um, the internet, something said that's still that's still true, but actually 8chan has really usurped it. And so yeah, the, 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 and and 8chan is uh, the place where the Christchurch shooter posted a link to his live stream. Um, before he shot people, it's the place where the manifesto was first posted, in addition to being emailed out to all these um, news organisations. I mean, the Christchurch shooter and a lot of these current crop of shooters are all a product of probably 2014 4chan, Paul, and 8chan, if 8chan was around then. It was. It was. Um, Brandon Tarrant 
spent about two years planning his his attack. He spent however the fuck long before that becoming who he, who he turned out to be. It's highly likely that he got radicalised around 2014 on these forums. And so what we're really seeing is that kind of the colonisation of Poland being, you know, 4chan and 8chan by Nazis is really coming home to roost. Um, this is this is a true corruption of like a, a, a popular website that something like Stormfront, for example, which is another white supremacist forum. Or Iron Ranch. Or Iron Mac would never be able to achieve because it, it doesn't have the, the cultural cachet of formerly mainstream website. There are some interesting arguments about like why it is specifically the Chan websites, which is basically just kind of an image board. Very simple, very, very simple in comparison to, you know, the kind of uh, slick interface of YouTube or Facebook or Instagram or all the kind of big stacks. There's an idea about why, there's kind of an interesting argument about why they would have become the place where radicalization happened most freely. Now, one is that they just have no moderation policy, or basically no moderation policy. There are different boards on these sites, so different kind of sections of the website, where people can post more or less whatever they want in accordance with the moderation rules of that particular section. There's a blanket rule um, across the whole of the website against child pornography. But apart from that, that's the only, I think, blanket rule. And so what this means is that you get this kind of ghettoization, even within 8chan, even within 4chan, uh, of different kind of rules and different kinds of moderation policies. So the New Zealand police, for example, applied to the server owner of 8chan to have the footage or the original archive, the IP address of the person who had posted in the thread that were the Christchurch shooter set up, um, tried to get this information from the server owner, and the server owner sent this like, uh, email back to them saying, you know, fuck off, basically. Like, um, this is it, we're in America, you can't do anything to us, your you know, country doesn't matter to us. Um, and so the, the simple structure of the internet allows for this kind of um, website to appear and people can't really do anything about it. The other kind of significant feature about Chan websites is that they are also self-refreshing. So they have no memory at all. There's no archive on these websites, though there are separate websites that archive for them. And what that means what is, is the interval between sorry? everything getting deleted. So, it's, so unfortunately, it's extremely quick. So on the most popular boards, um, there are kind of 10 or 20 pages and each one has, I think, 10 or 20 um, posts on. And so that's only the top, say, 400, 200, 100, depending on how the settings are, survive, and everything else is deleted. Now, if you imagine you have uh, people posting on these threads kind of several times a second, which is true of the most popular boards on 4chan, that means that if you're, no one replies to your post, within literally like a few minutes, your post has been deleted forever, and there's no chance of recovering it, which means that you have to post something that will attract massive amounts of very quick attention, or it just will disappear entirely. And what that means is posting ever more extreme ideas. The other thing this contributes to is that there's no cultural memory. And so that in order to actually establish a kind of robust culture on a particular website, what you have to do is just post the same shit over and over and over and over and over and over and over, and over again. And once you've done that, um, you have a kind of a, a meme culture that is endlessly producing uh, more of the same stuff, but it's also endlessly radicalising or pushing towards the greater and greater extremes. You can also see the um, a similar tendency towards controversy on, on more traditional platforms like YouTube, where you see these creators uh, creating more and more controversial videos um, because the YouTube algorithm doesn't particularly care if your video is very disliked, as long as it's driving traffic towards the adverts on that are attached to your video. Um, so there is also a tendency um, for people to start off kind of moderate and 
fluffy and end up breaking Nazi monsters. Oh, you, you see this, for example, people like Stefan Molyneux, who was never a nice person. He was started out as like a, a right-wing, weird culty leader, almost. Um, he advocated disconnecting from family members who didn't accept, for, accept you for who you were. He was a bad guy. And around the time of Trump, he pivoted into, you know, overt, like, kind of white nationalism, strong borders, which, you know, for a libertarian um, is weird. It's not that weird. Um, there are people like Hans Hermann Hoppe in the libertarian movement who have been trying to combine, like, a kind of a social conservatism um, with, basically, free market ideology. Hans Hermann Hoppe's most controversial, most famous moment was when he said that the, the, the chief advantage of having a strictly voluntarist associational communities, basically a kind of a free market and no state, was that you could ban gay people from your community. Okay, so now I understand who that guy is, because I was listening to the Faraday Speaks podcast on It's Going Down, and he mentioned that as part of his pipeline. He was like, first I was doing the jerks, and then I was doing doing the hoppe memes, and then I went on to the helicopter memes. And Helicopter memes are about uh, Pinochet? Uh, Pinochet throwing out uh, political distance left-wingers out of helicopters to their deaths. You, you see this tendency quite a lot, these these radicalizations that happen over time, these tendency towards controversy. You see it in the, in the genre of particular videos of debates. So Yeah, internet blood sports, they're called. Internet blood sports. Um, well, you get the two, the two most extreme people you can find and face them off in some epic debate that lasts for like five hours or whatever. Again, the tendency there is you're not going to get some liberal Democrat to go and debate you know, five P cards on plastic bags. Those debate organisers think they can think there's some value in trying to shoot down these people. So Rebecca Lewis of the Data and Society report, although we have criticisms of the way that report was carried out, particularly about things like sample size, um, basically concludes that the what she calls the alternative influence network uh, operates on basically the same principles as the influence network. So people are looking to establish an alternative sense of credibility based on things like their relatability, their authenticity, their accountability. And so often these are very, very intimate streams. Often they go on for kind of five or six hours and it's literally just one person broadcasting their message from um, their room into your room. And it's really interesting that like the bedroom has become the the site of consumption of the far right, uh, whereas before it might have been, say, the pub or the, the far right meeting or even the street. Um, you wanted to talk something about this, about the, the lack of physical contact that goes into radicalization now. Well, just quickly on the on the, uh, on the the YouTube thing. Uh, it is true that early on YouTube, right-wingers and, far, and particularly far-right uh, creators understood the algorithm much more comprehensively than any kind of leftist content did. They realised they had to post something every day. It had to be long, so you could fit adverts onto it um you have to you have to tend towards controversy and so what we had in like maybe even a few years ago before the rise of a conscious like left tube movement left movement on youtube um which just this is why like the algorithm still tends towards these right-wing things because there's just so many videos all linking into each other the the interesting thing about internet radicalization in particular or the, uh, radicalization as the, the the main form of radicalization today is that it's a kind of, uh, at one point it's individualised and at the same time it's still collectivised. It happens mainly on your own. Consuming content, consuming user-generated content, forum posts, whatever, videos, on your own, constantly, all the time. Um, 
maybe you don't have a job, you spend the whole day watching these things. And unlike uh, maybe, say, in the 1970s or 80s, 90s, when the internet wasn't, the internet wasn't a hegemonic thing, you had to physically go out to go out, interact, be physical with other people in, in, a, in a room. Which has completely has completely like uh, dropped away. We have we still have groups like Generation Identity and National Action who like deliberately set up gyms and and uh, and you know do train together things like that. They have these camps, um, but these are really the exception now. Especially when we're talking about the like the YouTube radicalization, the alt right. It all happens in a, in bedrooms, and and ultimately the interesting thing is we we put a call out for people's stories about about how they got radicalized and how they got out of the alt-right. And interestingly as well, the de-radicalization process came from an internal introspection as well. It wasn't really like an intervention from an outside force. It was actually just finding different content. So it's not like someone's coming in and saying, right, you are you are a Nazi, this has gone on far, far too long, you're well into it. Um, it just happened because they ended up watching different videos, which is like, I think I find that like, one part hurtful, like 12 parts terrifying. Um, it says quite a lot about how, like a lot of people like process information and, and build their beliefs in that all you have to do to jump jump out of an ideology or jump out of a perspective of thinking is just watch different content and take on board that content instead. Hi, Sam again. Alex is now going to read from one of the de-radicalization stories we were sent. Thank you for all your contributions. So it says, so funny enough, I discovered ContraPoints because an anti-SJW YouTuber who I followed, easy on me, and then in brackets, pretty sure he's also turned to left wing since then, uh, made a video trying to debunk her video, what is gender? I found her points really convincing and his counter arguments to be really bad. Plus, I really liked the aesthetic of the Contra video, so I decided to check out some of her other videos. The first thing her videos convinced me of was that gender exists on the spectrum. Because the people I know in my personal life, even when I was alt-right, I was still accepting of trans people. So it didn't take much to convince me of the validity of mm. non-binary identities. Mm. What's kind of interesting, I think, is that is how uneven the politicisation really is. People have like a completely non-systematic view of good, bad, etc. Even on the far right, like people who are kind of are grabbing at straws because there's no real like system of education. Um, there's no like curriculum of being on the far right. Like people just have. More or less a random collection of views. It's utterly non-ideological why a lot of these people get involved in these forums and in the alt-right, internet alt-right. Like, it's not it's not someone's convinced of a political ideology and then seeks out to meet other people who are also convinced of their ideology. They're just disaffected, alienated losers who, like, just end up with other disaffected, alienated losers. Yeah. And build their community around the, around the Donald subreddit or whatever. Or... It's entirely possible that that mode of radicalization could exist equally well for the left and in some sense it does so there's this really interesting um, thing I recommend people go and read by Joshua Citarella called Politogram of the Post Left so Politogram is an Instagram and it's basically a survey of the ways in which politicisation happens on Instagram around not like a particular set of political ideologies that already exist but around a kind of random ideology generator people are hunting out the new the most niche thing the most kind of um, yeah, explosive and strange thing uh, you get you know like um Anarchists, monarchists, um, primitivist, traditionalists, caliphatists, um, nationalist, Trotskyism, Dharmic, eco-reactionary Bolshevism, 
Um, Dharmic, I'm reading here. Dharmic eco-reactionary Bolshevism. Wow. Eco-reactionary. Eco-reactionary. What does that mean? What does eco the specific eco-reactionary? Well, I I guess so. I guess like it means something like eco-fascism, where it means that you have a uh, sense of the way that life should be led that is basically contained to very limited uh, resource consumption because you you think this is what people lived like in, say, for example, the fifties in America. Or you know, in the eighteen hundreds, um, so you probably eco reactionary. Um, the Dharmic, I can't really understand uh, why that might be so, but I guess it uh, pertains to a kind of cosmic order um, um, and Christian Bolshevism and etc. And so, the, the, what's really functioning here is not like a an attempt to radicalize oneself into a political direction or even um, a coherent conspiracy theory, but just like a, an attempt to be as strange as interesting as convoluted as possible in your political beliefs. There's a YouTube channel called JREG. His whole thing is anti-centrism. The idea that all political... centrism So all political ideas are equally interesting and equally valid, apart from the ones that everyone holds normally. So apart from like, you know, conventional liberalism, the centre-right, the centre-left, those, those are the wrong ideas. Um, but, you know, like the far, far right authoritarians, far, far left right libertarians, ANCAPs, um, you know, anarcho-communists... Uh, Stalinist, like these people are uh, correct. And in fact, they are all the same, ultimately, single dimensional political axis in which the center is like one side and everything else is good. It's good and it's on the other side, yeah. I mean, it's. It, the, That's lunacy. It's complete. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous, yeah. Like, and self knowingly so. And the whole channel is absurd. But I think it it, <laughs> it is absurd, but it also does capture something. Does he believe it? Uh, How so can, can you tell? <laughs> so there are all these videos where he's. He's like, well, I'm now going to tell you guys what my real political ideology is. And then something absurd happens, like he gets beaten up by a bear just before he's going to tell you. Or like, Okay, you know, so he doesn't believe it. I don't really know. I mean, like, it's possible that he's just a centrist. Everyone on the internet has just been like, I already poisoned a fuck. I can't tell what's real and what's not anymore. But that's, yeah, I mean, I think there's, that has, to some extent, passed its sell-by date as a, as a position, though. Um, yeah, and, and interestingly, the, the the reaction to the irony poisoning now is uh, like all this, the whole wholesome meme thing, for for, for example. But yes. also, like it's suddenly cool to care about the issues again, like it was in the nineties. Yeah, or even in the early two thousands. Right. Yeah. So there's a whole period after two thousand and eight, or indeed just after like two thousand and one, where people, you know, mass protest against the Iraq War, etc. And then after two thousand and eight, there's like mass movements against uh, social inequality, and these collapse and die and. You know, it's only really in the last kind of five or six years, maybe, that this kind of tide of uh, total irony politics has become like a major thing. Hi, Sam again. Here's some more of that de-radicalisation letter. I think the last, the last thing I turned left wing on was economic issues. I was vehemently anti-communist when I was not right. I remember ironically trying to dissuade people from socialism by saying that Nazis were socialist, even though I secretly, I probably agreed with a lot of their views. I remember not wanting to watch ContraPoints' videos on capitalism for fear of being convinced. Otherwise, I guess. Interesting. When I eventually did watch it, it convinced me that capitalism has some serious problems and I should read Marx to learn more about it. However, neither, neither of those videos or the marks that I read convinced me that a communist system would be better to a capitalist one. I came to the conclusion through real-world experience, I started working my full-time job, and the working condition I experienced there put a lot of Marx's ideas into context for me. To give you an idea, the owner of the factory almost never stepped foot into the factory. I'd only seen them there once for, in the four months I've worked there. Meanwhile, my co-worker was beyond retirement age, couldn't even afford to buy new clothes, even with overtime. This is what ultimately put the marks and Kropotkin that I read into context and convinced me that we need a fundamental reorganisation of the economy. 
Now we're going to have an interview with American Johnson, who goes by non-compete on YouTube. So we're here with um, American Johnson, who is, goes by non-compete on YouTube, a really fantastic channel, who's done a lot of work in terms of getting people to understand the kind of mechanisms of radicalization online, getting people to understand the ways in which people are being pulled into the far right um, from just kind of watching and watching and watching and watching and being involved in this online world of YouTube videos and um, the processes by which that uh, takes these tiny, um, I guess, like kind of fairly commonly held racist and sexist beliefs and just blows them out of all proportion, just like transforms them into these uh, monstrous um, kind of uh, configurations of like uh, really far right thinking. The reason why we're doing this interview is because we think it's uh, incredibly important to not only understand that process, but also to try and uh, intervene in that process. And um, Non-Compete is one of the people who's been doing, or American Johnson is one of the people who's been doing uh, like a huge amount of work on YouTube to de-radicalize people. Um, so that's, yeah, it's really kind of valuable work. So my first question is about the notion of reality collapse. So, or kind of reality fragmentation. Um, one of the kind of features of the internet is this uh, very well-known process by which people kind of shard off into little, um, I guess, kind of like worlds of their own. Is this a process yeah. that exclusively benefits the right? Or does the left have something to gain from this? If by the left we understand something like a kind of a, a universalism or an attempt to understand like the human in their kind of totality, like is there anything the left can gain from this process of kind of fracturing reality? That's a really good question. Um, I would say that it, it definitely... In my opinion, I mean, leftism is all about coming together. So for me, from my perspective, I think that the the fragmentation of people into these little, you know, groups or tribes or whatever you want to call them, that's something that definitely benefits the far right. You know, that's what ethnocentrism and uh, nationalism and, and all these different right wing ide ideologies are all about is like splintering people off you know, otherizing people. So, so, I mean, I guess there are advantages in terms of the fact that we can have our own spaces online as like a revolutionary base. Um, but I think, you know, we should be venturing outside of those bases and, and, you know, making connections to other people and signal boosting people from, you know, other parts of the world and other perspectives as much as we can. So I would say that, uh, yeah, to me, the, the fragmentation is a, is a symptom of things drifting farther to the right. I don't really see that as like the, I, I wouldn't call that like human nature or anything like that. I think that's actually something that's imposed on us by material conditions, by ideology. So yeah, I would say that we should be trying to reverse that trend, if anything. The big video you have on this is obviously the PewDiePie pipeline, which got nearly half a million views, I think, last time I checked, yeah. which is incredible. Yeah. Um, where do you think this kind of, this like this process of alt-right radicalization started? Can you see like a certain, point in the internet where it kind of started kicking off properly because like for for when I grew up the internet was like a kind of a happy place where you posted cat pictures and had silly memes like um, Nyan Cat and uh, Lol Cat and other cat related memes and and suddenly we're in a, we're in a position where we have like Nazi frogs and Nazi clowns and um, people coming out onto the streets and killing a lot of people because of, and, and repeating these these new internet memes where did it start yeah so it did kind of sneak up on us i mean it snuck up on me for sure but i will also say that i've been active on the internet since around the mid 90s when i was i guess in middle school and i've been aware of the far right 
presence on the internet, nationalist Nazis on the internet for a very long time. In fact, when I was in high school, um, it's when I first discovered the website Stormfront. Uh, it was it was a forum. Uh, so that must have been like late '90s, early probably early 2000s. But you know, they've been around for a very very long time, but they were very deeply undercover. But I I managed to find them just in like casual searching. I, I just had kind of a morbid curiosity. I wasn't a Nazi myself. I never posted there myself, but I did kind of troll around and lurk around in their forums, you know, and um, just, I just kind of wanted to see what, cause, cause you know what, this kind of speaks to the point when I was in high school um, and I saw news reports about, you know, neo-Nazis and that sort of thing, you know, marching and cause I'm from South Carolina. We do have, you know, the, the KKK and neo-Nazis in the deep South of the United States of America. And so I was like, who are these people? You know, when I was in high school, I remember having that kind of thought, having that morbid curiosity. So that's how I actually just started searching around and I found, you know, their forums and I saw what they were talking about. So they've been laying the foundations for a very long time. Um, you know, I think uh, fascism never really died. It goes through cycles. It goes through phases. It's a very opportunistic ideology. So it's always, you know, kind of waiting for the right moment to surface again. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, I can only speculate, but I would imagine that they saw a big opportunity probably around the early 2010s, 2000, or, you know, previous to, to Gamergate, um, they were probably starting to see these opportunities as feminism and BuzzFeed feminism and pop feminism and, and um, other sorts of, you know, social justice. And I'm not saying that with, you know, <laughs> ironically, but social justice movements were starting to get kind of mainstreamed. You started to see uh, LGBT people becoming more mainstreamed and normalized. And I think, um, I'm, I'm guessing that they probably started putting their antennas up at that point. And uh, so then when Gamergate happened, you know, you had this explosion. I think there were people ready on the sidelines to kind of swoop in and inject that far right ideology into the discussion. And I think it happened, it, you know, it really happened so in such a subtle way I think if if you weren't I, like I wasn't super political at that time, especially I wasn't aware of the far right, far left kind of stuff when Gamergate was going on, and so I didn't even really notice it happening until you know suddenly I turned around and there's all these far right skeptic quote unquote skeptics and everything. Um, yeah, so it did it did take me personally by surprise. Although I've talked to other people who were more active in far left spaces and um, you know for a longer time than me, I'm a little bit new to the left myself. And I think some people did see it coming. And I think that the far right, you know, people on the far left saw it coming for a long time. And people on the far right, I think they've been planning it for quite some time and just waiting for the right moment to inject themselves into the popular culture. A, a planned ambush or sneak attack is what it looks like to me. There's also this kind of other history of the Internet, I guess, um, which is that people thinking that the Internet is basically a, a kind of a right libertarian project. So um, people like um, Tim May and um, others who are writing things like the, the Crypto Anarchist Manifesto. Mm -hmm. And what they mean by anarchism is kind of a, a right anarchism. So it's kind of um, anarcho-capitalism, right? Um, and they are obsessed with the intrusions of the state into their lives. And they want to produce these separate regimes or kind of separate areas where they can freely experiment with ideas and say whatever they want. And the internet really affords them that. Yeah. And so I think it may be before the internet seemed um, like a Nazi space or like a fascist space. I think it, it before that, I think it seemed like a, its politicization 
through these you know, listservs and parts of the early internet was mostly on the kind of right libertarian front. Um, and there have been lots of studies about the way in which people who um, were right libertarians slowly as they discover what it is that they want in their kind of voluntarist communities, they discover that, oh, it's oh, it's just white people, right? And uh, so there's always a kind of like a, a transformation from like the right libertarian position into the fascist position. And that's, um, I guess, like kind of afforded or like that's kind of made possible by the network infrastructure of the internet or the kind of culture of the internet does transform in this way. So I wanted to go back on the thing that you were um, mentioned about like SJWs, social, social justice warriors, which is the term that the right uses for kind of the left. It seemed like after the Obama era, there was a big turn towards mass cynicism, um, cynicism towards absolutely everything about the possibility of social change, about the possibility of seriously caring about things. And that, that seems to collapse around 2014, the late Obama era. What, what, how do you see the, the role of like cynicism or moralism or earnestness as like functioning in um, internet culture? Oh, it's, it's, uh, it's fundamental to the online aspects of the right-wing creep, I think. And, you know, it started, I mean, I think uh, to go back to your earlier comments about crypto anarchism, uh, that's absolutely intrinsically tied in with the cynicism that you're talking about. And if you look at, you know, some of the biggest springboards for a lot of this fascist activity would be like 4chan and 8chan. And the people who are intrinsic in starting those sites, the people, the founders of those sites present a kind of a crypto anarchist worldview. And that had a lot to do with the ideological foundations. You know, people don't think of 4chan and 8chan as having ideological foundations. But if you read interviews with the founders, the original people who started the sites, uh, they definitely have that um, deep mistrust of the state. Uh, they, they have, you know, a lot of those crypto anarchist platforms built into their you know their their vision for why they started those sites, and on those sites is where you saw that cynicism really just just hyper develop very rapidly to where you know you have these memes uh, being generated en masse that are just rooted in this kind of hateful, spiteful, cynical, morally you know rudderless uh, avenues of, of of human thought, and uh, and it's yeah I think it's it's definitely been very powerful tapping into that cynicism. And the other thing is that that kind of cynicism and that kind of um, dark humor and that kind of uh, edginess, that's kind of a big part of um, how we as, you know, I'm a, I'm a cis heterosexual man myself. And I'll say that like, at least in the United States where I'm from in my part of the country, uh, that was a big part of like the culture of boyhood. And, you know, being a young man, there's a lot of that kind of like rowdy, edgy kind of humor, a lot of punching down jokes just to kind of, you know, see how far we can push the envelope with each other. Um, and so I think it dovetailed really, really, I, I, want, I won't say nicely, but it dovetailed very uh, profoundly, you know, where you have the, the crypto anarchist platforms and then you have the fascists on the sidelines that are kind of, you know, agitating in their own way. And I found that the the fascist, the, the hardcore Nazis, the hardcore fascists are actually very, very uh, savvy when it comes to agitation and propaganda and, you know, steering the direction of these kinds of like emotionally unbridled energies. Yeah. And, and it also ties in with the frustration and the anger of capitalism. Um, you know, a lot of uh, people like me who are like cishet, white you know, American guys, we had this dream presented to us where like, if you do all these things, if you go to college, if you do this, if you do that, then everything will be fine for you. Right. And then the economy is just completely in the crapper, you know, starting around 2000. 
eight is whenever I really started to feel the pinch. And I really started to realize that this American dream that was presented to me was really crumbling. So, you know, I felt anger and frustration as well. Fortunately for me, I was a bit older when that happened. I was in my you know, mid to late twenties when the economy really started to tank and a lot of that, but, but, but when you have these millennials and you have these younger people, you know, they were at the, that age where they were just starting to go out into the world. So I think you have a lot of angry young white men They're you know, they're being oppressed by capitalism in certain ways. You know, they're, they're not getting everything that they bargained for. And, uh, the fascists and the, and the cynics and the toxic, toxic, you know, uh, elements of online society were able to come in pretty early and focus this energy and figure out how to kind of take take advantage of it and and turn this into a real movement. A huge reason why fascism is so powerful and on the rise today in so many in so many countries. One of the I want to kind of just give a uh, recommendation to our listeners. Um, you did a video about uh, masculinity. Um, yeah. which is just you talking to camera for like seven minutes, something like that. It's a really great video. And in that video, you talk about the power of the word gay to kind of function yeah. in yeah. Uh, like masculine spaces, in like you know, the changing rooms for you know, PE, gym class, right? Like yeah. the, func- the power of that word to uh, describe anything that um, seems to deviate, even like the tiniest bit from the most like absolute kind of macho. That name calling and that kind of... Uh, aggression to anything that is even slightly deviant or even slightly like unusual or not even unusual just like just kind of uh isn't the absolutely most macho thing um kind of continues on these these two websites we were talking about 4chan 8chan except that it's no longer about being gay um on 4chan it's you know there, there are kind of a whole range of things but on 8chan on 8chan poll it's um i'm not gonna you know say the word but it's like a racial slur for jewish people Right, that and, that, yeah, and, that, yeah. and if you just look at these threads, that's the only thing that happens in these threads. Somebody posts mm-hmm. something, some, I guess, like undercover leftist or undercover, you know, kind of liberal, like comes on the site and is like, well, let's talk honestly about our experiences with, uh, you know, uh, um, people of other races, right? And then just like the whole thread is just this name calling, just kind of, uh, yeah, calling people, um, you know, horrible, horrible offensive things. Mm-hmm. So I think that, that, that really much remains. There's also, yeah, there's also the word um, aut- autistic gets used as an insult a lot nowadays um, in, in a very similar way. And then there's the word cuck. And I think the word cuck is very interesting because I actually saw that. That's one of the words that I saw being used frequently on Stormfront decade, you know, two decades ago when I was in high school. I, they were using those words. And that's a very racially charged word, the way that the, those hardcore fascists use it. You know, they have a very specific racially motivated uh, underpinning for when they use that word. Um, and, uh, and so to see that go mainstream to me personally, just because I had seen it in these hardcore Nazi spaces a very long time ago, I mean, that was just really jarring to me to see that go mainstream. And it really showed me that these hardcore Nazis and fascists were absolutely working as agent provocateurs to inject their ideological positions into this sort of cynical, uh, social undercurrent. And also just to go back to the, the element of youth. Um, I think that when you know, all young people of all genders, um, you know, when you're a teenager, you start to, uh, have this kind of fascination with your power in, in, in the concept of power and having power over other people. And you start to f- want to push power, you know, that you feel burdened, whether it's your parents, your teachers, whatever you want to resist against that power. And you want to start experimenting 
with like exercising your own power in the world. And there are healthy ways to do that, you know, so like maybe somebody can go out and volunteer or something and show that they can really affect change in their community. But if we're stifled emotionally, then suddenly we find these really unhealthy ways of kind of trying to impose power over other people. And I think words, you know, when, when young kids, you know, teenagers start to discover that there are these very powerful words and you could say one word, you could say a racial slur, you could, you could say something homophobic and, and get a reaction out of somebody, get a reaction out of an adult in your life even. Um, I think it's almost has this kind of mystical quality to a lot of teenagers if it's not, if they're not properly guided to realize how harmful it really is and how harmful that kind of power can be. So I think this all, yeah, it mixes together uh, disturbingly. I think that's so true. And I just, I'm thinking back to when I was a teenager and I never, I was, the worst I got when I was going towards the right wing was like, I became a dickhead, uh, new atheist, Richard Dawkins kind of person, which a lot of people of my age would probably have gone through at certain points. And I lived in terror of, of being accused of being gay. Like really like, yeah. uh, it was just, a, it was at some points it was the whole neurosis was completely all consuming for in growing up and being in school. And it, it could, I can totally see how they, they could have just diverted itself into a lot of um, time on the computer, a lot of playing out these kind of uh, reactionary opinions and thinking with other people on forums like 4chan. I'm, I mean, I'm just thankful it didn't happen, but it happened to a lot of people, I think. Just to go back to the use of the word yeah. cuck, I think that like speaks to just how deeply gendered these spaces are as well. Like Just how yeah. much there is in radicalization how much the feelings we've gone through a few of them like obviously kind of a latent racism a you know profound cynicism towards um the possibilities of like the world um and but also like perhaps even you know kind of just as fundamental as those two like a profoundly gendered hatred of women yeah. um and a desire to like uh possess um and a like fascination with um sexual violence um, I had a question about the kind of eggy humour that you talk about in the in the first PewDiePie video, um, and obviously we're not like I think you say this in the in the next video we're not against like dark humour or like um, humour that deals with difficult topics. I think that's often the, the best comedy is what is that kind of that kind of comedy that deals with like real issues. I wondered how, if you could talk about the way kind of eggy humour is used by people like PewDiePie and, and I guess John Tron, these kind of huge kind of YouTubers. And what makes that kind of eggy humour a negative thing that we need to be arguing against and, and opposing as compared to um, humour that deals with dark topics or, you know, yeah, that kind of stuff? Yeah, yeah. So I would make the specific, uh, you know, I would specifically highlight humour that is punching down or humor that is otherizing or dehumanizing certain, you know, segments of the population as being what's truly problematic. So, you know, you, it's it's absolutely okay to have humor about sensitive topics, but when you're punching down, you, you, just for anybody who's not familiar with this terminology, punching up is when you're punching like people who have power over you or people have po power over society. Punching down is when you are making fun of or making jokes about people who have less power, who are vulnerable, who are oppressed. And so, of course, punching down would usually target people like LGBTQ+, uh, you know, racial minorities, uh, religious minorities, and so on and so on. So, yeah, I would definitely say that the, the biggest problem with the kind of humor that we're seeing in the mainstream on these YouTube channels nowadays is that it is um, not just punching down, but it is 
otherizing and dehumanizing people. Yeah, humor has this aspect where it, it makes us more comfortable with things um, or it makes it easier to discuss things. It gets things, you know, it, it, it sort of like sets a foundation in your mind for, for these kinds of thoughts. And when you're otherizing people in a joking manner, you're basically laying the foundation for what is psychologically known as pseudo, pseudo speciation. And so pseudo speciation is this process where you basically convince yourself that people in whatever group are not actually humans or they're less human than you are, or you're more human than they are. And this is an important, if you really want to understand how pseudo speciation works, um, the people who have really pioneered this concept and been able to weaponize it very effectively are entities like the United States military, because pseudo speciation is, is vital in convincing young soldiers to go out and murder other people, to murder other human beings. We have, we have like innate psychological blocks that prevent us from wanting to hurt other people. There's a reason that most of us don't go around just punching some random stranger on the street. We kind of, you know, have this natural empathy for other human beings. But when you tear that empathy away by dehumanizing somebody, it makes you more prone to, to then engage in violent speech, which then makes it more easy for you to engage in physical violence. Just to make this really, really clear, because um, I think this is a really important point, when we talk about, I didn't come up with the term, but you know, I like to call it stochastic violence. I think that's the best term for what we're talking about, because stochastic violence is a process where agent provocateurs, uh, basically terrorists, are able to uh, essentially make conditions better for random acts of terror and violence to occur. And the way they do this is by just creating this general sort of social current of pseudo-speciation and anger and hatred and distrust and prejudice. And they, and they, they kind of like lay the foundations, plant these seeds. And, and uh, so I presented, I presented it as the pyramid of stochastic violence, which is to say that you elevate up through these stages, and, and I base this on research that's done on uh, sexual violence. So there's a, a pyramid of violence with that, that sexual violence researchers have come up with. It, it's a pyramid because as you go up to the through the stages from joking to verbal violence to physical violence, as you move up through those stages, uh, fewer and fewer people are going to actually graduate to the top. But the bigger the base, the more people will make it to the top. So it's not to say that every single person who ever makes an edgy racist joke is going to go out and commit a mass shooting. That's not the point. The point is that the more people who joke about it and, you know, make it a comfortable, safe thing to do to make a racist joke or a homophobic joke, the more people who are, who are having those kinds of joking conversations, the more people are going to actually start taking it seriously and engage in actual verbal violence. And the more people who are doing that, the more people are going to start to go out and do perform acts of physical violence. It's a situation where... It's, it's literally physically dangerous to vulnerable people for, for, to become the targets of these kinds of, uh, you know, down-punching, prejudicial jokes because it creates an atmosphere that makes it much more likely for people to graduate up to verbal violence and then on to physical violence, as we're seeing, unfortunately, playing out in the real world. Yeah, and I think it's really important for us as anti-fascists to um, make clear the consequences of these kind of things and, and lay out the processes that go behind them. Our past episode of our podcast we did on the Christchurch Shooters Manifesto and we tried to, uh, we read it and we tried to explain it to people so they, they wouldn't have to read it. We picked out the, the important bits, tried to put it yeah. in context um, because I, I genuinely don't think that thing should be, you know, read by a lot of people. Um, but the, the thing right. that came to, to me out of that manifesto was it wasn't trying to appeal to a broad range of people. It wasn't trying to convince uh, like hundreds of thousands of people of a certain ideology. It was trying to drag up people already at, 
quite high up on the pyramid into doing into the final stage of, of violence, um, which I think is something that wasn't really grasped by a lot of a, a lot of people who were like analysing and talking about on the news and stuff, in that it wasn't like appealing to this mass, it was appealing to a very select group of people on in very select spaces. Can we talk about de-pseudo-speciation, the processes by which people um, come to see others, uh, people who are not in the same racial group as they are, people who are not the same gender as they are. Can we, how do those processes work? So how do people become kind of de-radicalized? So first of all, it would depend on how far up the pyramid they've, they've graduated. If they're towards the top of the pyramid where they're the kinds of people who would be reading these manifestos that are coming out that are like literally calling for people to commit violence. If you're if you're at the point where you're susceptible to that level of violence, uh, that's going to require a totally different series of techniques and strategies to deprogram a person like that. That's basically somebody who has been deeply brainwashed at that point. Um, and pseudo speciation, in my in my opinion, uh, based on you know the research I've done, it's very similar. Like once you get to those higher levels of prejudice and bigotry. It is a form of brainwashing. It's got it, it has a lot of cult-like aspects to it. And as you graduate up to those levels to where you're starting to get really serious and ideologically fixed and fixated on that kind of hatred, um, that's when you start to get into the into the realm of actual brainwashing that needs to be like seriously deprogrammed. That is something that I think only that not everyone should be trying to engage with. Like if you're, if you're talking about a serious hardcore Nazi who is ready to commit violence or who has already committed violence, obviously it's a dangerous thing to go and mess with those kinds of people. And that's something that takes a very specific set of uh, skills and abilities and strengths that most of us don't have. So I would first of all like to say that if anybody's you know listening to this and they're, and they're thinking about going out and like deprogramming hardcore Nazis, just be very careful about that because – you know, first of all, you got to be able to speak their language, which is why I think the best people for that job tend to be former Nazis themselves, people who have already deprogrammed. I think those people are well suited for doing that work. Uh, there's a fellow who's pretty pretty viral these days, uh, goes by Faraday Speaks, um, but his name's Caleb, and he he has a YouTube channel, but he also has a Discord server where he and a bunch of other former fascists and neo-Nazis are, you know, doing this really grueling, dangerous work of deprogramming Nazis. Um, but that's not something that most people should be concerning themselves with. And the good thing about that is that if, you know, if we're trying to reach people on the lower levels of the violence pyramid, not only is that easier and is that more accessible to all of us, but it's also like, in the grand scheme of things, probably much more effective to go after the base of the pyramid. Because the sooner you can stop somebody from going up to those higher levels of the pyramid, uh, the easier it is and the more, I think, mass effect you can have. So, you know, I would say that as a community, as a movement, we should be trying to target the lower levels of the pyramid and nipping the bud, you know, as early in the, in the process as possible. So that has to do with, you know, any other kind of leftist uh, ambition or goal. It's a, it's a matter of, you know, organizing ourselves into, you know, groups that actually have some cohesion, some some uh, some systems in place for communication, uh, security networks in place, um, and then going out and, and producing propaganda, agitating, um, and just trying to push the culture, trying to shift the Overton window, uh, trying to make it, basically trying to make it not cool again to be racist, uh, you know, or maybe not cool for the first time, really, to be honest. Um, but but that's the thing. We got to be basically, I think it's got a lot to do with changing the culture. And you can look to 
former, you know, like previous move, movements who have had great successes with this sort of thing, um, you know, there's a there are examples of like uh, communications programs. Like the LGBTQ plus community has done a lot of really amazing things in the past, going back to the 70s, 80s, 90s, um, in terms of creating outreach campaigns, creating uh, public support campaigns to normalize being gay, to make it, you know, to put us a, a, a stigma on homophobic language. Um, those kinds of tools and tactics are what we need to be using to target the bases of the pyramid and basically just, you know, making it very clear. The, the thing about it is, and especially because this stuff is on, it's, it's, it's happening so predominantly on places like 4chan and 8chan and Stormfront and all these, these anonymous forums, the only way to really attack a problem like that is to change the culture. Because right now, it's kind of cool and hip and, you know, fun to be a Nazi. But we have to make Nazis afraid, whether that is, uh, you know, that's not necessarily to say physically afraid, but we need to make them realize that it's not fun or funny or something that's going to be socially acceptable to make this, these kinds of jokes. And, um, yeah, it's, it's not an easy, it's, it's like a, it's a, it's a really complicated problem. It's not easy, but that's, that's I think, where we need to be kind of focusing our energy. In the um, the UK, there's a thing called Contest, uh, the most famous part of which is uh, Prevent, which is a kind of a four-part, uh, I guess, like counter-radicalization strategy that the government puts out. And Prevent is um, really damaging, really, really damaging. It's, um, it's, it's uh, increased surveillance of particularly the Muslim community in the UK. And but the, in Contest 3.0, which was published, I think, in November 2018, so quite recently, there was kind of indication that there would be um, what they refer to as a step change in surveillance, that they were going to um, increase the amount of surveillance, particularly of far-right groups. How do you see the role of the state as um, yeah, an anarchist? Uh, how do you see the role of the state in deprogramming people, getting people out of these kind of groups. Do they have a role? Is there anything for them to do? Or is that kind of not possible? I mean, I, I can mostly speak for the United States of America. And uh, in that instance, I would say, because I'm not as familiar with, you know, the UK, but I would imagine that it's not that much different just based on what I do know. Uh, I don't trust the state in the United States of America at all, not one little bit to be doing this kind of work. Because for one thing, you've got Nazis deeply embedded in the police, in the in the you know, intelligence communities, th those are, you, you basically have the wolves watching the hen house. I mean, there's a, there's a reason that, um, white nationalist fascistic terror, it was responsible for 100% of the political, uh, motivated, politically motivated deaths in 2018 in the United States of America. And yet the president of the United States of America is not even willing to talk about white terrorism, there's very little attention being put on this situation. I mean, I you know I am an anarchist. I I I don't believe that the state has our interests as you know working people, vulnerable people in mind to begin with. But then whenever you read some of the stories about uh, these fascist cops who are literal neo Nazis, you have cops who are literally impregnating uh, leftist activists, you know, as, as undercover agents, just disgusting stuff like that. It happens every single day. Um, so as much as I would love to believe that the state could, you know, make inroads in fighting this kind of terrorism, I just, uh, I don't have much faith in them myself personally. And that's why I think we as anarchists, as leftists, need to be focusing on building our own 
dual power structures, building our own direct action campaigns, and solving these problems for ourselves as a movement, making our communities safe ourselves, looking to success stories from the past, from the past when it comes to community defense, looking at examples like the Black Panthers in the United States of America, who were incredibly successful at policing their own communities and policing the police and and forcing the state to pay attention where they needed to, you know, uh, and that's not just it, it's not just about fighting the Nazis. It's also about empowering vulnerable people. It's also about doing things like the Black Panthers did when they implemented school lunch programs and, you know, educational and health campaigns and that sort of thing. Um, we have to attack it on all fronts. We have to be scientific in the way that we develop our, frankly, revolutionary activity to fight these Nazis. Because if if we only focus on one thing or one aspect, if we're not connected, if we're not unified into a united front, um, they are. The Nazis are. They have their shit together, you know? So we have to have our shit together and and be very uh, strategic and and collaborative in how we attack these problems. I think that's totally true. There's um, uh, recently in Germany, where of course the police have like a, an even perhaps more kind of dubious relationship with um, Nazism, uh, recently in, I think it's Hesse, um, part of Germany where like the police have been really consistently slow to prosecute neo-Nazis, to um, well, of course, you know, in Germany it's a crime to be a neo-Nazi. Um, they've been really slow to prosecute neo-Nazis. They've also been really slow to assign a political motive to the kinds of racist murders that have been going on uh, in Germany with uh, the National Socialist Movement and uh, a bunch of uh, neo-Nazis who were kind of prepping for doomsday. Um, yeah, there's this the real kind of a failure of the state to do these kind of things. Yeah, and I don't think that we can trust them at all. I think that's, you're totally right about that. I've got a few German comrades, and from what I understand, things are actually a lot worse there than than it seems based on like national or international media like doesn't cover it very much. But apparently, there is a huge undercurrent of fascist activity in Germany. So yeah, that is a place to be on guard as a leftist for sure. I have a last question on YouTube. You put all your content through YouTube, um, and as a platform, it's not you know the most progressive thing in the world. In fact, it's not progressive at all. Um, yeah. And recently we had channels like Three Arrows being banned. We have anarchist, leftist, anti-fascist content regularly being demonetized. Um, should we be staying on YouTube? And if so, how can we be contesting these kinds of um, like algorithm-driven bannings and, and um, censoring from YouTube? I know you said in your video that you're against censorship in general, and I, I completely agree with that, but we need to, how do we protect ourselves from, from having our message shut down? Yeah, I mean, and I don't know if I was clear enough in the, in my video. It's not so much that I'm like against censorship in and of itself. It's just that again, I'm incredibly skeptical that YouTube or any capitalist corporate uh, entity has the you know wherewithal to properly do censorship. Um, I mean, I'm all for stopping Nazis from speaking. To me, it's more successful when it's done by things like the direct action campaigns we see on college campuses, which literally has blocked notable Nazis from speaking um, and direct action campaigns to like, uh, you know, from from the bottom up, you know, um, if YouTube really did have the capacity and ability and commitment to ban Nazis from the platform, of course, I'm all for that. Um, but I don't see it going down that road. In fact, what I actually see happening is very heavy handed, uh, completely thoughtless activity where they are, you know, just demonetizing LGBTQ plus and uh, removing leftist creators 
they're 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 basically the way that corporations respond to these problems, the way that PayPal did it, the way that uh, Patreon has done it, you know, is they they say, okay, uh, they they have the horseshoe theory mindset. You know, the fascists are bad, so the anti-fascists are also bad. We'll just ban both sides and. Look, we've solved the problem. So, you know, that's why PayPal and Patreon have banned Antifa uh, activist organizations, because in their twisted capitalist hell world mindset, uh, that's the thing to do. If you're going to ban the Nazis, you also ban the anti-Nazis. For, for some reason, that makes sense to, to organizations like YouTube. So that's why... That's what I mean when I say that I'm against corporate censorship. It's not that I want Nazis to be talking on these platforms. It's just that YouTube's not going to do a good job at this. So, uh, again, it's 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 on us as a community. to and, and, and so as far as, like, leaving YouTube, that's something that I'm so – I've been uh, on this topic since the beginning because I work – you know, my background is in media and marketing, and I know that, um, you know, you know uh, the medium is the message and having control over the medium and the platform gives you control over everything, essentially. I mean, you could say that we have free speech on YouTube, but we absolutely do not. The algorithm, the monetization policies, you know, there are a lot of uh, it's, a, it's a huge opaque system that we have no say in. And it's a very authoritarian system. And it's very much against the interests of vulnerable people, working people. So we do need to have our own platform. Uh, for one thing, as a backup, because I have no doubt in my mind that as leftism, anarchism, communism, as these ideas start to grow and blossom and become stronger, uh, that's when capitalism is going to start nailing us down, uh, banning us, uh, blocking us from using these platforms. It will happen eventually. So in a long term, from a long term perspective, we absolutely need our own platform. Um, in the short term, though, it's really rough because as leftists, we need to be communicating where the people are. You know, we need to be speaking where people are listening. So it's a huge problem. And we as a movement need to, again, get our shit together and have these conversations and make these difficult decisions on how we do that and how we get people moving en masse to other better platforms. I have one really last question about uh, the future. So yeah, yeah, it seems like um, there's, there's this really interesting book by a guy called Joshua Citarella called Politogram. So Politogram is is kind of the the political part of Instagram. That's the kind of term he uses for it. And you get people on there who have these kind of wild uh, novel combinations of, you know, like North Korean ideology, Jewish, and like neo-reactionaries, uh, neo-reactionary Jewish Christians, or <laughs> right. like uh, eco-Bolshevist anarchist uh, monarchists. You know, like, how, 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 does any, okay. how does any of this stuff fit together? And, and it seems like... Uh, the, one of the kind of uh, features of this fragmentation is not just fragmentation into the right, but just fragmentation across the political spectrum. People are just making up the most kind of random combinations of things. And, and to some extent, I really re welcome that. I think the, the possibility of thinking about politics in just a kind of really experimental way, in this really speculative way, is immensely liberating. But I think that, that but this, this kind of random generator increasingly seems to be subject to a kind of selection. So... One way in which these random gen these random ideas have been selected for um, is that you get lots of fascists. In the long, long, long term, what do you see as the kind of dynamics that would um, like push something to be selected? And, and what do you think is going to be the dominant ideology on the internet in like 10 years time? How are things going to change? So I would, I would present two scenarios. One would be like the worst case scenario and uh, the other would be best case. So worst case, the left continues to fragment 
and we use these different labels to wall ourselves off from each other. We cancel anybody who doesn't, you know, fit into our very narrow bandwidth of like what's ideologically correct. And we eat ourselves, you know, which leftists are very prone to do. I mean, I'm a big proponent for at the very least tactical unity between leftists of different stripes. Um, so I could definitely see that happening. And if that's the case, then we're screwed because in 10 years time, that's right around when the, uh, climate crisis is, uh, has us completely irreversibly screwed. You know, the military security industry is going to have developed amazing things to oppress the working class in ways we haven't yet imagined or conceived of. Uh, automation is going to be destroying one of our last bargaining chips, which is our labor. And we'll, you know, probably just everyone on earth will die while Elon Musk and company fly off to Mars and start their own, uh, you know, utopia. <laughs> so that's the worst case scenario. <laughs> yeah, no, I hope it doesn't go that way. I mean, um, if we keep going in the direction that we are, there's a chance that could that could happen. But what I really hope would happen instead is that these kinds of labels are prompts for discussions and debates that are productive and that we embrace the diversity of ideas that we have on the left, the diversity of ideas that are inclusive and liberating. And I hope that we, you know, I've, I've learned so much. My partner on my channel is a Vietnamese Marxist-Leninist woman named Luna. And, you know, she studies the Ho Chi Minh school of uh, Marxist-Leninism. I am not a Marxist-Leninist myself as much as many segments of my YouTube audience think I'm becoming a Marxist-Leninist. I'm not. Um, but from talking to her. <laughs> it's inevitable, comrade. It's inevitable. <laughs> but from talking to her and talking to other, you know, Marxist-Leninists and Maoists and that sort of thing, I've learned a lot. And it, it what it does, it it makes me a better anarchist, I think. It forces me to think about things from different perspectives. There are good ideas that I could borrow, and I can have influence on them as well and inject you know, my anarchist perspective into their worldview. So I think having that dialogue is very healthy. Um, I like to think that you know, this is like kind of a pie-in-the-sky optimist view that I, you know, perhaps goes against my better judgment. But I like to think that in about 10 or 15 years' time, uh, the left will kind of gel into uh, a cohesive front you know, I like the idea of a united front. We can debate and discuss and disagree in the rear amongst ourselves. But when it comes to fighting capitalism and fighting oppression and fighting racism and hatred, um, I like to think that we will find a way to present a united front and have these conversations and these d debates productively without disintegrating. That's what I that's what I would like to think would happen. Um, and it's it seems like, like it would go one way or the other because it's it's really a do or die all or nothing kind of situation that we're facing as a as a planet. Yes, I think the the climate angle is like incredibly important here. The possibility of something like yeah. a coherent like eco-fascism arising is is I think I think personally like the real 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 threat, and that would mean you know, well, it's, it's terrifying. Yeah, great. Thank you so much. Uh, do you have anything else you want to be asked? Do you have anything else you don't um, get to talk about that like that you really like want to <laughs> say? Well, I'm I'm actually uh, just about right. Right after we finish this conversation, I'm going to be uploading my new video, uh, which is on revolution and uh, the different strategies that we have you know, available as revolutionaries and why I advocate for revolution over reform. So maybe that's just something I would let your audience know. That'll probably be online by the time that they listen to this. Um, and beyond that, I just want to thank you for having me on the show. And uh, it's been, I'm, I'm sorry if I rambled too much, but uh, I did enjoy talking to you. And I <laughs> thank you very much. Yeah, thanks a lot. Thanks a huge amount. Do go and subscribe to Noncompete. That's non compete.com and Noncompete on YouTube.
If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by going to patreon.com forward slash 12, that's one, two, rules for what, and donating $2. There are actually three different tiers now. There's $2, which will get you um, our eternal gratitude. There's $5, which will get you access to a further reading list that we've compiled of our research through the week. And then there's $10, which will get you um, our notes that we've taken for the the episodes. You can also rate and review us on iTunes. That really does help us. And follow us, retweet our stuff, help us with, do our own promotion for us. Signal um, boosting is of immense importance in uh, the internet now. It's essentially practice, and it's really important <laughs> to do. Thanks for listening. Bye. 12 rules. <laughs>